biking is my passion. It's really was the center of my life and my health. So the way my week would go, I would spend a huge amount of time looking at the weather app and trying to figure out when I was going to ride, which days, what time of the day, and really hit the best <laughs> um, optimal riding weather. And then my life revolved around those rides. So that really was how I centered my life for five, six years. Um, and my husband even told me, so I was afraid he was going to say, you're never going to ride. You know, I, I can't bear it if you ever ride again. And one of the first things he said, I mean, before I got even through my surgeries, he's like, I, there's no way I'm going to live with you unless you're back on your bike. Listening to the Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast, the exploration of life fully optimized with Megan Hotman. Hey, Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast listeners, welcome back. This episode is brought to you by my friends over at Relish Studio. Check them out on the web at relishstudio.com. They are a digital marketing firm devoted to purpose-driven business leaders, and their goal is to guide and support their customers as they realize the full potential of marketing to fuel both business and personal growth. Speaking from personal experience, I have worked with Relish on websites, logo design, and in fact, the editing of this very podcast. I can't say enough about them. And my friend Stu is just a wonderful human. He is totally in alignment in terms of environment and sustainability, two things I'm very passionate about. And in fact, their entire business is a 1% for the planet partner which means they're giving back a percentage of their revenue to environmental causes and organizations. I just love these guys. I can't say enough about them. If you decide to check them out and you want to hire them for a new job, make sure you mention the Maximum Enthusiasm podcast to them, and they will offer you a 10% discount off of their normal rate on their first engagement with you. Check them out, relishstudio.com. Welcome back to the Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast. This is your host, Megan Hotman, and it has been a hot minute since we last recorded a show. I think it was back in the spring of 2022. We are now into November 2022, and the reason for that large gap in shows is because I unfortunately was involved in a collision where I was on my bicycle and a careless motorist caused a crash that left me with some pretty serious injuries. I had to undergo surgery and spent the majority of my summer and fall rehabilitating and trying to get back on my feet. So with that in mind and sort of going through this experience uh, in a pretty significant way myself after having represented now almost 200 injured cyclists 
in my line of work, um, I had on my mind and heart a recent client who was hit by a motorist. She was involved in a collision where she suffered serious injuries. And there were various aspects of her case from start to finish that uh, the system definitely let her down, specifically in the criminal justice side of things and the traffic case and the way that the district attorney handled her case. Um, but there were also just other aspects of her case that really lent themselves to being very informative, very instructive, uh, specifically the way that she handled some of them and navigated them, and also just her uh, tenacity and her resilience as she recovered from her injuries and is still recovering, and just her outlook. And um, I felt that she would be a really great guest to have on the show. We haven't done much with the law firm in terms of having many injured cyclists on the show. And so this is a bit of a deviation from our normal topics, but it does still end on a positive and optimistic note. And um, whether you're a cyclist or not, or whether you want to inform yourself of what to do if you or a loved one or a friend are involved in a collision with a motorist or not, I think you'll find Maureen's story incredibly inspiring and uplifting. And um, she's just incredibly passionate and articulate and I, I hope that the show leaves you with a sense of that maximum enthusiasm that we try to impart on our listeners with every show and with every guest. So thank you so much for tuning back in after a pretty long hiatus. And I will just leave you with a book recommendation. I have been reading a book called Coming to Our Senses by John Kabat-Zinn. That's K-A-B-A-T hyphen Z-I-N-N. He talks about healing ourselves and the world through mindfulness. And certainly on the heels of my collision, which occurred on June 5th, I am a very different person and am far more concerned with mindfulness and living in the present because um, when you face that moment when you're not sure what's going to come of it, uh, you can call it a near-death experience. You can call it a glimpse into how significantly your life um, is about to change. You can call it whatever you want, but it, it lends itself to sort of stripping away all the uh, things in life that really are not important. And it certainly he has heightened my sense of um, just awareness and um, spiritual healing, spiritual awakening. And I look forward to sharing a lot of what I've been doing and have learned in these months since the collision in terms of my own emotional healing and um, the spiritual journey I've been on ever since. So uh, I'll stop there with the intro. Again, just want to say thanks for, for being back as a listener. And I hope that this uh, episode finds you well. And uh, here we go with Miss Maureen O'Keefe. Maureen O'Keefe, welcome to the Maximum Enthusiasm Podcast. It's so great to have you here today. Thank you for having me. For our listeners tuning in, this is a really special show. This is the first time that we have hosted one of our former law firm clients to speak specifically about her experience, some of the lessons that she learned, some really big takeaways. Uh, she was so tenacious and showed so much endurance and resolve specifically during the traffic case against the at-fault driver that I asked her to preserve her sentencing hearing statement so that she could share that today and hopefully inspire and inform some folks if they ever find themselves in that position. And 
and she's got some great ideas on how we might improve the way these cases are handled if we if we had a magic wand and we could make things exactly how we wish they would be and how we could make cycling safer in the world. But before we dig into all that, I'd love to just talk a little bit about Maureen the human and Maureen the cyclist. So Maureen, talk us through you and your life and when you fell in love with cycling. I came late to the cycling scene. I did start mountain biking in my 20s when I moved to Colorado from Ohio. I came out here for graduate school and I got into mountain biking for a few years, then I got into rock climbing, skiing, and then I had a kid and that all kind of went away, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and I started uh, deciding actually I wanted to lose weight. So I started biking to work. Um, it was pretty far distance. So I would drive halfway and I would park my car and I would bike the other way, the other half and back. And then I thought, well, so I could get a little faster, I should start riding on the weekends. So then I'd start riding on the road a little bit. Uh, I had once bought a road bike from somebody and I, those skinny tires just scared me to death. And <laughs> I never rode it again, I gave it away. So after I started this commuting to work, I and riding on the roads a little bit, I went back and I bought a road bike and loved it just fell in love with road biking instantly. And I started riding, you know, 3,000 miles one year or 4,000 the next, 5,000 the next. I just couldn't get enough of it. I started doing mountain climbs. Um, I, Vail Pass was my first mountain pass that I ever did. And the next year I went up uh, Pikes Peak, which is That's pretty a big steep. one. <laughs> That's a big one. Yeah. And I think the next year I went up Mauna Loa in Hawaii on the big island. and. It just was trying to do more and more mountain passes. I did get back to mountain biking a little bit during COVID uh, because my son didn't have too much to do with COVID. So that was pretty fun with the new technology and mountain bikes. And then for the last few years, I've done gravel biking, but honestly have not fallen in love with gravel biking. It's just dirty. It's bumpy. It doesn't go as fast. <laughs> um, but so road biking has been my big passion. And you are down in Colorado Springs, which is definitely a mecca for all the various formats of cycling that you've just mentioned. And it's a pretty safe city in general to ride between the prevalence of bike lanes and the bike paths. Um, were you a cyclist when you came to Colorado Springs or it was when you moved there that you started to really pick this all up? It's after I moved here okay. about 30 years ago. Okay, so from Ohio to Colorado Springs, the love of cycling was born. And uh, you became not just a recreational cyclist, but also a commuting cyclist. So really the full, the full circle of the cycling lifestyle. And oh, go ahead. You look like you're going to say Brief, something. Briefly, I, did, I took a job in Pueblo, Colorado, um, which and I live almost in Monument. So I couldn't commute when I was doing that job. But I did almost every day bring my bike to work. I'd go an extra hour early so that I could have a two hour lunch hour. And then I would ride almost daily on my lunch hour. And because it's a little warmer down there, you can do that year round. Yeah, totally. They definitely get drier trails and things and the roads dry up better down there. That's true. And speaking of when you were working in Pueblo, at some point in your Colorado working profession and career, mm -hmm. you were engaged in the criminal justice system. Uh, tell me just briefly what you did there. 
Sure. When I was in graduate school at UCCS, uh, University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, I started working for the Department of Corrections as a research intern. And then I went back there full time after I graduated. And I worked my way up to be the research director for the entire state. So all the state prisons were under the state agency. And then I, every piece of information or data that went out of that state agency went through me. Every report, every statistic, oh, wow. every news uh, piece of information um, that contained data went through me. Any major takeaways from that experience? Anything that the rest of us maybe don't know but should know or any uh, insightful information? <laughs> probably too much to think of all at once. Probably too much to, yeah, to capture. I'm sure it's a lot. Um, and we've alluded to how expensive it can be to, to incarcerate someone. Is that the, is that the truth? Absolutely. It's expensive to incarcerate. And I really believe for lower level offenders, there's a lot of wonderful alternatives in the community that can be done that don't require the expense or removing an offender from their environment. You know, it's, it's hard to leave your world and then go back and be a productive citizen. So to the extent that you don't have to do that, it's so much better. Yeah, that's good. It's, that's really, good it, it's really not a lot of low-level offenders in, in the prison system, I promise you that. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to that topic in a little bit because we're definitely going to touch on that a bit later. So you're, you're married, you have a son, he's a teenager now, and you're not very good at staying retired. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. After I left corrections, I went to work at CSU, Colorado State University in Pueblo. And I was there, retired from there about two and a half years ago, and then stayed on as a retiree to do uh, a uh, data conversion project of their student information system. And then that finished this past June. And I've been trying to get my business going kind of along, along the way, but I keep having so much work that it's hard to focus on that. So uh, two months ago, UCCS called me up and asked me to come help out uh, as they lost their research staff. So I'm filling in there. So it's it's cutting into my bike time a little bit. <laughs> well, you're obviously very good at what you do because you keep getting pursued and, and you're very sought after. So that's a testament to you and how awesome you are. And um, hopefully one of these days you can properly retire when you feel called to do so. Um, let's turn our attention to the events that we're going to really specifically dive into today. And, um, let's start with the big bike trip that you did prior to this all unfolding, this solo bike trip. Tell us about this adventure you went on. Sure. Uh, in September of last year, 2021, I decided I had had, uh, going to the Sun Road in Glacier National Park on my bucket list. So I took this long um, three-week road trip up through Cody, Wyoming, Yellowstone, stopped to visit some family up there, and then went up to Glacier. And I rode going to the Sun Road solo. It was, it was an interesting experience. There was so much traffic, even though it was after Labor Day, it was just constant cars and then really narrow road. There's no shoulder. Um, there's a huge drop off on the side Bummer. all the way up. Um, but it was great. Cars were really respectful. People were super nice and friendly. Uh, I got to the top. People were helping me take pictures by the Logan Pass sign. 
which the funny thing is being from Colorado and doing all these high mountain passes, when I got up there, I realized that the mountain pass altitude was lower than where I live. <laughs> it's all relative, <laughs> right? <laughs> I came down and it was the first time I'd ever been pulled over by a police officer on my bike. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yes. And so what he told me was that cyclists weren't around, allowed to ride certain segments of this road at certain times of the day. What? And then I was going to have to sit there in the middle of bear country by myself and wait for the road to open to cyclists in like four hours. Are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And then he pulled away and I'm trying to call my husband and I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And, and cell service was spotty at best. And I'm thinking, should I just go for it? Because I'm almost to my car. It's only a couple more miles. And I literally was getting on my bike going, okay, I'm going to do it because I'm just bear bait sitting out here. And all of a sudden he came back and he goes, oh, I'm so sorry, ma'am. That rule is only between Memorial Day and Labor Day. <laughs> so you're free to go. You didn't have to break the rules and you went for it. Oh my goodness. That's great. That's actually really good information to know if you go before Labor Day. Truly. Oof. So you made a call to your insurance broker before you went on your trip. Tell, tell us about that because it's germane to what we're talking about. I did. So I have been following Megan Hotman on Instagram for a number of years and I've seen a couple times your post where you're supposed to increase your insurance. And we have really great health insurance, I think pretty decent car insurance. So it felt like we were covered. But I remembered you said, get the maximum insurance that you can get or afford. Mm -hmm. So I called them up before this trip, since I was going to be going solo, and asked to increase my insurance. And they said, no, you're fine. Your coverage is good. Your health insurance is going to take care of you if you get hit, if anything happens to you while you're biking. So I kind of had it on my list to get back and really delve into Megan's posts about why, but I never did get back to that before my trip. And specifically, you were talking about your auto insurance and your med pay coverage and your underinsured or uninsured underinsured coverage. I think that's probably what you called about. Correct. Yeah, I called about the uninsured, underinsured, and that's tied to your regular coverage. So whatever coverage you have um, for yourself also then carries over for the UIN. And not a terribly unusual experience to be talked out of it. I, I have had numerous people convey that same experience where they ask to increase limits. And for reasons I'll never understand, because the insurance company stands to make more money in the premiums and and inherently, I assume that the agent does as well. They'll they'll convince the client that they're they're fine. So that was an interesting, intuitive hit that you had, and I think that was a wise thought to have, especially before your trip. And um, and they talked you out of it, and and then you came back and tell us about the events that we're gonna really unpack today. Tell us what happened. Sure, it was about a week after I got back. I had to come back for my wedding anniversary on October 1st and my birthday on October 5th. And then I went for a bike ride on October 7th. I was supposed to be off that day, but they begged me to come to a meeting. So I did a little meeting and then in my uh, kit, ready to go on my bike as soon as the, <laughs> the call was done. And then 
I was on a road, a neighborhood road, and they always say that you get hit right by your house, and that ended up being the case for me. I was not hit when I was in Glacier, and I was hit about two miles from my house. So it's the road is really popular with cyclists. There's about a five-foot shoulder clear line all the way along for marking off the shoulder. I approached an intersection and there was a car stop there. And I think in my head, I just kind of discounted like, okay, they're stopped, they see me. You can't always see through the windshield. I try to make that eye contact whenever I can, but with sometimes you're not able to do that at a distance or with the sun. Um, and the driver pulled out and I just assumed the driver was turning to go the same direction as me because that's the route that people go to get to the highway. Nobody ever crosses that road. That's all neighborhoods feeding into this one street that then goes off to the highway. And by the time I realized she was actually cutting straight across and that she didn't see me, I was only um, maybe 20 yards from her, very close. And I screamed at her, but the, her windows weren't open. I hit the brakes as hard as I could. And I did avoid the front end of her car. If I hadn't, if I hadn't braked, I would have been under the front end of her car and very likely would have been dead. And I still, as it was, hit the back end of her car with my tire and her car pulled my tire along with it and kind of just slammed me down to the ground. And when that happened, my, um, my shoulder and my knee were shattered. So I wasn't able to get up and move. I thought the driver drove away. To her credit, she did actually stop. So she must have felt the impact. And um, she and a couple other people that saw the crash did come. The, the, funny, the funny thing that happened, so I'm facing the way that the driver had come. So I was not looking where she was headed. And there were some cars on the street that were passing and one minivan very nicely like gave me a huge berth and went around and just kept going down the street. <laughs> and then another car coming the opposite direction slowed, pulled over, got out of the car, looked at me, turned around, got back in his car and drove off. And I'm sitting there going, oh my God, nobody's gonna stop for me. I can't believe this. I was less oh. than a quarter mile from the fire from a fire station too. So, but what I didn't see was that these three women were coming up from behind me. So they came up. And I pulled my phone out of my jersey pocket, like, call my husband. And they're like, don't move, don't move. We'll call your husband, but we're calling 911 first. So, yeah, the other irony was 911 was busy. I'm like, the fire station is like right there. It was, it, it was somewhat comic, even in my injured state. So two things I want to unpack or just expand on. One is this business about people not wanting to be bothered as witnesses and just how incumbent and important it is, uh, whether you see something or whether you just have the opportunity to be a good Samaritan and stop and render help. Uh, I think it's pretty poignant that a couple people had that opportunity and chose to keep going. And so it's sort of my public request and plea that we all be good humans for each other and we stop and we do what we can when we can when we're in those circumstances. I'm sure you agree with that sentiment. And thankfully Absolutely. you did have 
you know, three women that did come and stop. But of course, more is always better. And especially if someone has witnessed it, that witness testimony is so incredibly important. Um, the other thing is in those moments, so you were not struck behind as a number of our clients have been, you, you saw what was about to happen to you. And um, having recently been through this experience myself, where I also had the the oncoming event in my vision, um, those moments just before that actual impact are, I would say, life-altering. Do you agree with me? Yes, they are very vivid. They And we don't know what's coming out the other side. Um, we know something bad's about to happen. You don't know what the aftermath's going to look like or is this it. Um, what would you want to tell people about those moments, if anything? What, what would you share with someone who's maybe not had an experience like that? I like, I w have been to your website multiple times since the crash, and I think it's so important to know some of the things like not to move. The adrenaline rush, you, your first instinct is, oh, my God, I'm still alive, thank God, and I'm fine you know, I'm fine. I'm going to get up. I'm going to get up. I'm going to go. And so the people, one of the persons that stopped was an EMT in training. So she's like, you cannot move, do not move. And, and that was really great in retrospect. I think it would have been fine for, for my situation with my injuries, but I think that's so important. I also wish, I know that I was the only witness to that accident. The other cars came by and, After. but I do wish that we had thought to take pictures of the scene get names, things like that. I assumed that the police would do that. You know, the police showed up, the fire, the ambulance, everyone was there. And I assumed all that would be taken care of. And that is incorrect. Yeah. And the experience for someone like yourself, as someone who's showing even a hint of a serious injury is that they're going to focus on tending to you medically, getting you in the ambulance and carting you off site. And sometimes that's before the police officer even has a chance to dig in. So when did you finally get to give your statement about what happened? That's true. But before I go on to the, yes. um, you know, while I'm being carted off, I think just an interesting thing for the audience is that the police officer was getting a statement from the driver and he, and in the background, apparently I am screaming in pain, both as they're trying to get me up because I'm in the middle of a busy road, a somewhat busy road. And they wanted to get me off that street. So I was only in one street. And then later getting me into the ambulance, a lot of screaming went on. And the police officer was much more concerned about consoling the upset teenage driver than he was about what had happened to me. And I, I found that out later from the DA, and I'm utterly shocked by that, that the police officer has way more concern for the driver than for the victim. Yeah, the body cam footage is where that came up. Um, and that is a concerning trend that we've also seen in our cases where the cyclist is being tended to by the medical staff. And so law enforcement is trying to console the at-fault driver and it's captured on body cam on their vest. And then later, not only is that inappropriate, you can be a nice person and treat this distraught driver professionally, but you don't need to bend over backwards to make them feel like it's not their fault. But the second part of that story is that that video footage then um, dissuades the district attorney from taking serious action on the case because they feel that that footage is going to actually backfire with a jury 
where the jury is going to somehow either think the cyclist was at fault or they're going to have so much sympathy and pity for the driver that they're going to come back with a not guilty plea or verdict. So it's very harmful and damaging. And, and not only that, of course, how it made you feel just as a human to learn that information. Certainly. Yeah, that was definitely shocking. Yeah, yeah. And so your state, your opportunity to give your statement comes later. Right. They find so you later. I'm, when they put me in the, get me into the ambulance, they're pumping me full of fentanyl and all kinds of, every kind of drug they can. And they told me, you're not even going to remember this ambulance ride. But I, I do remember it all, uh, kind of in a fog, kind of like, am, are we still sitting here? We haven't even started moving, kind of fog, and, and all the way. But from the moment I hit the hospital till quite a bit later, I don't remember any of that. And the police officer came then and, and took my statement. And, all, and that's probably about when I started remembering things again. And he, I couldn't write, so he had, he's like, have your husband write it down, you say it. And so I barely got one or two sentences out. I didn't even get to reread it, which as a researcher, I never send anything without rereading it. Like, <laughs> your worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, oh, it's fine, don't worry. And that was it. And I never saw the police officer again. I never heard from him. I never got a copy. I didn't get to ask any questions. That was it. I was, I was pulled out to do a test. Um, you know, CAT scan or something, and I'm gone. That's another, um, that's another really critical takeaway from this case is that if you are a cyclist who is helping someone who's been hit, if you are their spouse, if you are their friend, like in this case, your husband is there with you, or if you are tending to someone who's in this situation that Maureen is describing, it's really critical that we not allow the cyclist who's under the influence of significant pain medication to be pestered to give a statement. That is so inappropriate. That is not the right time and place. Um, it, that's really something that should be followed up and done later when the cyclist is out of surgery or something, but is at least in a logical and clear uh, mind space. And so that's a very unfortunate situation that occurred in your case that, again, is not unusual and is a quite common occurrence. So um, it's one more way that it doesn't set up the traffic case for success, as you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure since you have read your statement since, I would venture to bet there are things about it that you would love to change and edit had you been given the chance. Certainly. Yeah, yeah so you, as you said, your shoulder and your knee exploded. Um, significant, mm -hmm. significant injuries Talk us through just a little bit about what that looked like, because um, I, I know it was it was big and it was bad. Yes. So I had the first surgery that first day was for my knee. It was so badly shattered that they couldn't operate the first day. And so they put an ex-fixator on, which is a big, two big rods, and they screw it into your upper femur and then into your shin. From the outside, and just so everyone knows, it's like, oh, yes. it's like a robotic fixture on the ex on the outside of your leg. Crazy, and, and in all honesty, in the state I was at, I didn't understand what they were doing to me. I came out with my leg all fat and bandaged, and it was bandaged, so it was fine. When they opened it up two days later, I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I did not realize what they were going to do to me. It was yeah. Shocking. So I have four screw holes in my leg, in <laughs> and. My shoulder, so that was surgery one. Surgery number two was two days later. My shoulder was the humeral head, which is the ball joint on your shoulder, 
was shattered and dislocated out the back. So a lot of people will dislocate their shoulder, but that's always out the front. It never dislocates out the back. It, it takes significant trauma to dislocate that way. My, underst my understanding is that um, being dislocated that long that there's the blood supplies cut off so the bone just starts to die off. So when the trauma surgeon tried to save it, he was not able to. It, it just crumbled. So he had to remove the humeral head. He replaced it. So I have a partial shoulder replacement. The bone was shattered so badly that it really, there's not a lot of bone until about halfway down my arm. So for example, right now, my rotator cuff just doesn't have bone to attach to. So I do still have a rotator cuff, but it's not able to really grasp onto anything. So I have limited range of motion with that. And it, because it was so badly shattered, the arm was definitely the worst part of all this. Um, I was not, I was in a sling and I wasn't able to move my arm at all for months. Uh, not to shower, not to change, not anything. Zero movement at all. So, and then the third surgery was on the knee about a week, eight days after the first one. And so they did a repair. They were able to repair the tibial plateau fracture that was shattered and with plates and screws. So I have a plate and seven big long screws in there. Because the leg was broken and because of the arm, I couldn't use crutches. I was in a wheelchair. I couldn't, I couldn't walk. I couldn't be weight-bearing. There was no way without crutches to be able to just start gradually increasing. So I went from zero weight-bearing to 100%, and that took about three months to get to that point. And then the shoulder. I know, unfortunately, a lot of orthopedic friends. <laughs> I'm not sure what that says about me. They were concerned about the lack of movement in the shoulder. So I got a second opinion. Uh, and the doctor is actually the head of the Olympic, the Olympic committee. And he was at the Olympics in February, but I was able to get in to see him miraculously. So he had me start moving it after about two months. My original trauma surgeon would not have let me move it for four or five months, which means that I really would have lost all use of my upper arm. So I am fortunate that I have some that I was able to start doing some rehab early on. And I know you touch on some of this too in the statement that you're going to read. So just to the extent that we maybe don't duplicate some of that stuff, because it's, it's so well said in that compilation that I want you to read. Um, but a couple of things that you raised there that I just want to highlight for people, the, the last of which you mentioned, which is when something doesn't seem right, whether you have friends who are in orthopedics or it's just your own intuition, like you've lived in your body your entire life, we tend not to give ourselves credit for when we think something's off and we do hand over a significant amount of our power to our medical providers because they're the experts in the room or that's how we sort of see them. And so I just want to applaud you for saying this doesn't seem right. Uh, whether your friends told you that or not, you probably had some doubts in your mind um, and you pursued a second opinion. And we've unfortunately handled so many cases where clients have said they're outside my insurance network um, or I don't want to offend my current doctor by going behind their back and getting a second opinion. Um, ultimately, you have to live in this body and you want to do everything you can to maximize your recovery. Absolutely. And what's really interesting about my case is that 
the, the one surgeon did the first surgery and I never saw him again, but the same trauma surgeon did both the shoulder and the knee. So since I went for a second opinion on the shoulder, but I didn't have any issues or concerns about the knee and I needed ongoing care from him, I couldn't really just break up with my doctor. <laughs> I had to keep seeing him and I had to really be very clear that the care of my shoulder was transitioning to another doctor. And so that it was a bit awkward, but totally and awkward. Disagreed, and they and they had professional disagreements, and we had lots of discussions all the way around, and what everyone thought. And thank God, I had an excellent physical therapist that helped me kind of balance some of the concerns from both of them. But that's huge. Yes, what what you say is so true about you know feeling like you don't want to hurt their feelings. Well, especially in the ongoing relationship context that you had. I mean, that, again, is just a testament to your tenacity. I hate to keep using that word over and over, but that really is the word that comes to mind when I think of you, Maureen. Um, and to say uncomfortably, I don't like the advice you're giving me about my shoulder. We're good on the knee, but we are going to agree to disagree about the shoulder, and I'm going to pursue this other um, this other treating physician and, and follow their instructions. And and yeah, doctors get to disagree, but again, you were your own advocate, and I just can't emphasize how important that is. And you didn't say, well, it's you know outside of my insurance coverage or whatever. You said, no, this guy's the best at what he does, and I want his opinion because I want to have the very best chance of getting use of my arm again. Um, so for our listeners, as I'm sitting here looking at you, we're on video while we're talking, um, you know, you look like a healthy, vibrant human sitting in front of me like no no one would guess you've got a sweater on you're sitting no one would guess that there's anything traumatic that's happened to you um i i find it so interesting that people will be so dismissive of the experience that someone like you has been through I feel sometimes that optimism is forced upon us in a way that i feel is inappropriate um, where someone says, wow, that sounds like that was really bad, but, you know, thank God you're okay. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's within your right to, to be optimistic and be grateful and say, you know, today I choose to feel grateful and I am thankful that I'm alive and this has really sucked, but I, I am glad I'm still here. But sometimes I feel it can be very offensive for other people to sort of force that on us when we've been through something traumatic like this. What's been your experience as people have tried to say the right thing or be a nice friend or be a nice human, but the words don't come out quite right, and it really does a disservice to this horrendous experience that you've been through? What are your thoughts? What do you wish people would say to you or would have said? You are so perceptive. I can tell that you have been through this. It's so many people have said, you look fine, you look normal. And I do. And I will never feel that again. I know no. it's gone forever. I just got the goosebumps. In the hospital, people actually were incredibly sensitive. And as I go through this, I, I try to think about what did people say that were so helpful? Um, or did they stay away from or things that really made me, you know, just kind of Cringe a little. Yeah, cringe a little. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you the one thing was speedy recovery because it just I I just don't like that. I wish you a speedy recovery when you know that it's going to be months, years, till you're even anything resembling normal. I mean, months before I even looked normal, and yeah, I mean, there's just nothing speedy. So I I 
will always wish people a full recovery, a strong recovery, um, but really understanding that people need their time and space to recover. This past month has been incredible. I've tried going back to mountain biking a little bit. I've tried going back to gravel biking, and it's it's been horrible. It has been so difficult on my arm, the bumps on my shoulder. I just, I, the pain that comes after lasts for months and is just disabling for everything. So I have in the last month been able to do some very mild mountain bike rides and some tough gravel rides and without a lot of pain. And here I am oh, 13 months later and starting to see some recovery. I think and in my mind, my friends and outsiders really expected that, like maybe back in March. Yep. So I think it's so important for people to set aside their own expectations. A lot of people have had bad crashes. They've cracked ribs. They've broken arms. They've, they've done, you know, they've had a knee, you know, one thing or another. But you just can't translate one person's injuries to another. And it's not a reflection on your health, on how determined you are, on anything. And and so I think when people put their own expectations based on their recovery onto your recovery, that is really hard. I've had some so it's it's a hard it's a hard line to walk because I really appreciate the friends that have pushed me that, that did not want me to give up cycling because of this incident and have really encouraged me and still to this day you know call me up hey we're going for a ride and and you're not ever riding alone and i love having that community but mm -hmm. i felt for a long time like i just wasn't meeting people's expectations because mm -hmm. it took so much longer than i thought it would to get back to where i was i'm still not back to where i was but i'm pretty close yeah you make some really good points in there and um I think I said this to you early on and I say this to people when they hire us, it's totally okay to be angry. Um, we don't have to live in a state of gratitude and optimism on the back end of something like this. It's okay. And I, I'm not a psychologist, but I would venture to bet it's actually healthy to be angry. Um, and I've struggled with people basically trying to tell me I don't get to be angry and sort of shaming me when I'm not in a constant state of gratitude or optimism and um, some days the body just feels like shit for really no reason whatsoever and I know you've had this experience too and it's hard sometimes to put a smile on your face and confront the world with like I got this kind of attitude when the truth is inside it's hard not to mourn the loss of the person you were before this so um, I don't know I'm rambling a little bit but thoughts about that yeah absolutely I think um I just lost it. No, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. You'll, you'll find it. We'll, we'll yeah. come back to it. Oh, I got it now. Okay. I, I always felt the need to be really honest with people and not, and not just say, yes, everything's really fine. I didn't feel a lot of pressure to be super optimistic, and people really were great, you know, telling me that I had more optimism than I thought I was showing but I also think because injuries can be inside so internal mm -hmm. that I maybe went the extra mile to make sure people really understood how far I still had to go and 
I don't know. I, I just felt I was being honest. I hope it wasn't being too negative. I didn't feel negative, but I really think people need to understand what recovery takes. Yeah, good for you. That's a good way of characterizing it, being honest, providing enough information that people can at least have a chance of, of understanding, intellectually at least, some of your experience. Um, before we kind of move on from the recovery part of that, I wanted to just touch on a few of those really difficult moments that I think get lost on people. We kind of breeze by when someone says, I wasn't able to use the restroom by myself for months. I wasn't able to bathe myself for months. Um, I couldn't put my hair in a ponytail for months. And uh, I feel like in general, people are kind of like, oh, well, what's the big deal? Honestly, I think that's more significant than any medical bill I could show a jury is talking about the loss of one's own dignity as an adult who was completely self-sufficient and now you've been reduced to this complete dependent. What were a few of those just rock bottom moments? Oh, I have some of those. I consider myself to be hugely independent and to a fault, um, my husband would tell you. And so going instantly to really being unable to take care of yourself. I, in the hospital, I wasn't even able to get out of the bed for weeks. Um, so I was there for, I was between hospital and rehab just over three weeks. And when I got to rehab, they let me get in the wheelchair and that was pretty new. But they almost weren't gonna let me go home from rehab because my leg was shattered, my shoulder shattered. So I was in a wheelchair. So I had to buy, you can rent one wheelchair through health insurance, but I live on a two-story house. So I had to buy another one for upstairs. So to get into the house, my husband had to get a ramp built in the garage and everything kind of came last minute. Mm -hmm. And so they literally put the screw, the last nail in that ramp as my girlfriend was driving me to the house as we pulled in the driveway. So I get in there and then all of the bathrooms are, don't have wide enough entry for a wheelchair. So I have like a one-handed walker. I mean, I'd never seen anything like it in my life. So you hold it with your good hand and try to shimmy your way over to the toilet. Yep. And my occupational therapist, when I got to the inpatient rehab, said, oh, no, no, you are not doing this. There is no way. You cannot go home. You cannot do this. this there is no way. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> And so, yeah, I, there's no other way to describe it other than I literally shimmied on one foot to and from the wheelchair and the toilet for months. And even to get upstairs to go to bed, I had to do it on, on my behind. Mm -hmm. And I had one arm and one leg to get me up. And so I scooted up and down. I had to have my husband and my son help me carry stuff up because you just can't, oops, I no. forgot something. You can't go back and get it. I had to get a little carrying case that tried to carry all my medicine with me, my notebooks. So I could remember when I took my meds. Um, I couldn't, they had to train me in the hospital how I could dress my upper body without taking my sling off. Mm -hmm. And so we had to cut my clothes all the way up the side and 
all the way down the arm. And so you really just pull the shirt on over and you kind of tucked in that cut side along under your brace and in, into the sling. Um, but really, really, I'm pretty sure the lowest moment of this whole adventure was about the third time in rehab when we were doing a group shower. My husband was so paranoid of hurting me that he just really freaked out on his first shower with me and couldn't hardly do anything to help me because he was just so scared. And the occupational therapist was there. And so then we called my good girl good friend uh, Suzanne in to help me. And yeah, so they get me in the shower and I'm the only one naked in this party yeah. sitting there that's in not, the shower and they're all sitting there laughing, talking. <laughs> just, you know, I'm doing, and I'm just in excruciating pain, trying so hard not to move one inch, let my arm slip at all. I thought this has got to be the lowest point of my entire life. I wish I could put those types of things on a billboard for people who drive cars and don't don't ride bikes, don't understand what it means when you collide your vehicle with someone on a bike. Um, that that image of what you've just described is so powerful, and that really is like the the essence of the experience that you've been through. It's humiliating, and it's the loss of independence and all the things. Just um, it takes life and just dumps it out on the floor. Uh, and it's a whole nother way of existing, as you've said. Mm -hmm. So um, you mentioned you're back on the bike. Please don't let me forget. I would really like us to come back to how you've decided that you still want to keep riding bikes. I think that's a really important topic. But in terms of the chronology, I'd really like us to start talking about the traffic case. Um, because you were dealt... The, in my opinion, the worst hand uh, from the district attorney's office of any client I've seen, and I've seen a lot of clients treated unfairly by DA's offices, but the way that yours was handled really took the cake. It really took the cake. So um, talk us through how that first hearing went and what you were told and um, sort of the, the chronology other than what you do mention in your um, and if it's more helpful, we can also just go straight to the sentencing statement if you feel that that encapsulates it pretty well. Um, I, I can just talk about the different okay. hearings and, and gloss over some of that during the statement. But the first hearing, I was bugging you about when it was going to be and where and what the procedures were. And you gave me a contact at the DA's office and I called that person and I can't believe knowing from working in the criminal justice system for somebody to really just pick up the phone the first time you call was amazing. And she was a very helpful DA and explained that, yeah, I was free to come to the first appearance center and what to tell them and that I'd be able to be there. It's still it still didn't quite really prepare me for how it was going to be. You see court on TV and you kind of think that's what it's going to look like. So it really was a big giant conference room with a lot of chairs and there was a desk off to the side. And when I went there, they didn't at first really know what to do with me. They said, um, you're not a victim. <laughs> and like, yes, I am. I am. So I was still, I was just starting to walk again. I had my cane because it was snowing and icy out there, but, um, I was just starting to look a little bit better, at least from the outside, but really four months out, not in great shape. But they did finally, they did take me back into a separate room to talk to me. And I was able to say, hey, I want to be involved in this process. 
I want, uh, I want to know what's going to happen. Are you going to offer a plea deal? What's the plea going to be? And we talked and he was going to offer a plea and I don't even know what it was, but he said that he would um, hold off on doing that. They would just advise her of her rights. And so they took her in, into a room, I believe advised her of her rights and then didn't offer the plea. And so they scheduled another hearing and I knew a little bit more what to do. And at this, at the first hearing, my friend Suzanne and my husband John came, but there was, they weren't allowed to be in the room or be involved. So the next time I just went by myself and I talked to, asked again to talk to the DA or the deputy DA. And I was pulled back into a room. There was somebody that I was pretty sure was the driver's attorney there. And Apparently, there were two deputy DAs, and one took me back, and one took the defense attorney to a separate room. And while I was talking to the one DA about the plea deal that they were going to offer, she was telling me they were going to not offer it. They were going to take into consideration my comments, and they would reschedule it out. Well, at the same time, they were meeting with the defense attorney. They offered a plea deal, and it was already determined. The The case went to yet another, so a fourth deputy mm-hmm. DA, and it was scheduled for about two months out. Um, you and I both tried to get a hold of this deputy DA. She barely returned any emails, and we kept asking what they were going to offer for the plea, and she didn't say anything about the plea until a week or less before that third hearing, and she said that they had already offered the plea deal to the driver, and nobody had told me, including this one that we had been emailing with. So they lied to me at that first hearing when they said they weren't going to offer it, they were going to just delay it. And then this um, fourth deputy DA was really um, trying to hide the truth from me. Yep. Very dishonest. And then... What was the next hearing? Uh, oh, then it went to a hearing where it was on online, and you and I attended online. And we asked the DA to let us speak. Yep. Um, first, they spoke, and that fourth deputy DA that ignored the emails and perpetuated the lie for two months, victim blamed me time. on the stand. Big time. And the defense attorney victim blamed me, and nobody was holding them in check there for a while. And it was hard to hear. I wasn't fully following because everything was new, and it was super hard to hear online what was going on. But based on people that were in the room and me talking to you after, um, yeah, that was horribly shocking to me and disappointing. And then Megan spoke to the judge at um, and asked them to... Reject the plea. Reject the plea. Yeah. And because yep. it was a chicken shit plea. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, the plea deal was for what, four points and 20 hours. community service hours. Yep. And so, and I asked them to, re- I asked the judge to reject as well. And she did that. And my understanding is that's uh, incredibly rare. Maybe you've not had that happen. Not before. often. Not often. No. 
Nope. And the defense attorney was going bonkers because she was outraged that I was speaking up and trying to get the judge to reject the plea. And we were for the first time given the opportunity where you described the extent of your injuries to the judge. And the judge flat out said, my God, given the nature and extent of these injuries, yes, this plea is grossly inadequate. Thank you for bringing these things to my attention. Yes. And then apparently from uh, what we could hear on the camera and the people that were in the courtroom, the defense attorney acted out, um, yep. slammed, her, slammed her laptop, kind of threw it across her desk. The judge scolded her. Um, the person that ended up being the fifth deputy DA on this said he thought for sure she was going to be hauled out of there on contempt. Yep. She was not, but um, it definitely was quite an interesting <laughs> hearing. And I think part of what freaked that defense attorney out was that there were 75 people online in support of yes. me as the cyclist. So you had advertised that on your Instagram and I posted it. And a lot of people from, I belong to three bike clubs in town. So a lot of people from the community stepped up and, and participated. They didn't That's speak. Cool. They just were there silently with the presence. Public scrutiny, I do believe in these cases, is hugely important. Hugely important. Yeah. And thankfully, we had a judge who got it, who, who I mean, she was invested in it. She was um, aghast at the nature and extent of your injuries, and she sent them back and said, go do better. I'm not accepting this plea. Yes. And the judge was amazing. And after, after that hearing, I heard from the DA supervisor yes. and another DA, and they really handled the case and oversaw that, I believe, because of the judge's response to how grossly inadequate the plea was and that they allowed a third-year law student to be able to make such a deal. Yep. And, Let me pause and, you there briefly, because that is also a dynamic we see often. So in terms of teaching cyclists what to be on... Uh, high alert for these traffic misdemeanor cases are are perceived as as small cases because they're not intentional crimes like assault battery murder um, and so they're oftentimes handled by these baby DAs and frequently third-year law students who have not finished law school who have clearly not taken the bar are given these very serious cycling cases with catastrophic outcomes, I would argue your outcome and many of the cyclist outcomes are far more significant than a robbery case or uh, a forgery case or uh, even an assault case. I would say your injuries are far extensive from what those felony crimes are. And yet these traffic misdemeanor cases are given to these very inexperienced DAs. And it led to exactly what happened here where they just try to clear cases and they um, want to get them off their docket. And so she advanced a very ridiculous plea, which, of course, the defendant was more than happy to agree to the careless driving the four point with the 20 hours of community service. So we really were lucky that we had a judge who intervened and said, no, that's not going to work. So after that hearing, the DA's office engaged with me a lot more. Um, unfortunately, the the judge was promoted to district court, so she was off the case. Um, it seemed like the driver and her family fired the defense attorney. They did. There was a new, there was a new attorney, and then um, there was a new deputy defense attorney that was going to be the lead on my case. Now he had been 
present for some of the more recent activities, so he wasn't brand new, but a lot of changes that happened. He found the body cam footage where the police officer was consoling the the victim. The driver. And, or, sorry, the driver, yeah. not the victim. Yeah. You are the victim. <laughs> and he was really nervous that if they found that, that the jury would really buy into the, the driver not being at fault. So we ended up agreeing to do a plea deal mm -hmm. because we didn't want to risk a, and with a set step sentence um, determined going into the hearing because we didn't know who the judge would be um, yep. or, or what they might find. So yep. she did end up with what 80 hours of community service. So four times of what they were looking at. And unfortunately the same number of points on our license. Um, if I were to do things differently. If I were in the system, I would love to see that people are losing their driver's license. Like you said, you know, a robbery, any number of these different types of felonies don't have the same types of consequences, consequences lifetime consequences to people that when there's serious bodily injury or death. And yes. the, I wish the courts would not be so reticent to suspend a driver's license. There is no cost to doing that to the society like there is with the jail sentence but it can be incredibly impactful when i was when i was in college and i had a lead foot i lost my driver's license for a brief amount of time and i stopped speeding afterwards i sure. really did i didn't get another speeding ticket for 25 years there you go and yeah, And I would have been a lot happier if she had done that. I think the other thing, if she had lost her license, at least for a period of time. Yep. And I think the other thing that didn't happen in that last court, court hearing was that she was given an opportunity to apologize. And whether her attorney said not to um, or she just chose not to, she didn't realize that was the right opportunity. I found that really disappointing mm -hmm. that there, there was never any interaction between the driver and the victim. And so I, I think people are too easily of the mind that insurance will take care of it and we'll just throw some money at it and it'll be fine. And they don't want to accept personal responsibility. And after I gave my testimony, her defense attorney threw some things out there and that really made me feel like they, they were just taking this plea because they didn't want something worse to accidentally mm -hmm. happen to mm -hmm. them. She wasn't really at fault. She didn't mean to do it, so she wasn't really at mm -hmm. fault. And, you know, he threw some things out there like, you know, I was coming around a blind turn. I wasn't coming around a blind turn. There was a, there was a gentle turn way behind where I was. But it, it's really hard that nobody ever asked me what happened. As the victim, nobody ever asked what happened. And I was the only person that saw what happened. Nobody else, including that driver, ever saw what happened in that accident except for me. And so to get through that entire process without anyone except the except the police officer for that two police minutes officer. while I was way under drugs, you know. Yep. Yep. And I think it's also super poignant uh, in your case that you happen to have a son who is the same age as this young driver who hit you. 
And, um, and the courts do seem to bend over backwards to keep, especially these young people driving. There was a lot made here about if she was going to be studying abroad and could she drive to her job. In 2019, I was hit by a young driver. Same thing, the DA and the judge, it seemed like everyone was bending over backwards to keep this young person driving. It was just so critical for her to be able to pursue her lifestyle and keep her license. And to your point, it's absolutely free to suspend those privileges and take someone's driving privileges, not right, but privilege away for a period of time in the hopes that they may correct their behavior. Um, but you and I discussed, you know, you've got a son the same age. If something like this, uh, if he had been behind the wheel, I suspect you would want your son to take responsibility for something like this or any young person his age. It doesn't even have to be your mm -hmm. son. I mean, we were both pretty shocked that she did not take that opportunity to mm -hmm. apologize and take responsibility. Absolutely. And there's a lot of ways to take responsibility. And my my son would be living a very different life than this driver. We caught him because we have an app that tracks him on his phone. We caught him speeding down the highway. I won't even tell you how fast, but I could see in the app. And he knew what he was doing. And we we suspended his driving privileges mm -hmm. for that. He didn't get caught. He didn't hurt anyone. Um, everybody ended up being fine. But the, the dangerous behavior... Yep. We could not support that. And the fact that this driver actually caused such great harm, I can't even imagine as a parent not reaching out to say, how is the victim? Are you okay? Or, you know, I, I, I can't even imagine not requiring your child to make some amends mm -hmm. for that action, to really just discount it as, you know, it was an accident you didn't mean to, so it's not your fault. Right. Right. And it's important to note, too, at this point and, and for a while now, both cases have been closed, the civil case and the traffic case. At any moment, this young girl could easily put a note in the mail to you and say, I'm so sorry for what happened and what my behavior caused you in your life. You know, that door never closes. That opportunity to say, I'm sorry, doesn't expire and that, uh, that it, opportunity has not been taken, which is really unfortunate. Mm -hmm. um, any additional thoughts on that? Otherwise, I would love to have you read what you read at the sentencing hearing, and you can um, say as much or as little of it as you want. I just really, for the benefit of our listeners, for anyone who may be in that position at some point, I just found your statement so well thought, so well organized. I love how you talked about kind of the three aspects, and um, and I, I know that it really impacted everyone who was in the courtroom and on WebEx that day, and it certainly had an impression on me. So this is like the template to follow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you with that introduction. Um, it, it's hard. I will just say to preface this, it's really hard mentally to prepare the statement, to get into it, and, and to be able to deliver it where you're not just reading it. Um, so you just have to immerse yourself in it for days before the sentence. And that is probably even harder than some of the recovery that I've had to do is to just mentally put yourself back in there, especially at the point where you're looking to try to put it all behind you. Yeah. So um, in my sentence, um, I'll, I'll go through it. I might uh, gloss over a couple of the areas yeah, that we've sure, gone sure. through in depth already. But I said, good morning, Your Honor. My name is Maureen O'Keefe, and I'm the unfortunate victim in this case. And thank you for the opportunity to speak at today's sentencing. 
it's important to me to take part in this process and to emphasize to this court and to this DA and the defendant that what happens in this case matters very much to me. It matters to my friends, my family, and members of the cycling community who are online as well. And I wish to speak about three areas. Um, one is the crash, the second is the impact of it on my life, and the third is my experience as a victim. So I don't wanna go all into the crash um, because we, we did that in detail already. Sure. But, but the reason I wanted to talk about the crash is because nobody asked me. The DA didn't ask, the defense counsel didn't ask. Nobody asked me about what happened and I didn't want it to go on record and to let the victim be the person or her attorney be be the voice of what happened in that crash because they they were the last voice they put in the last word trying to say oh it wasn't that bad it wasn't really her fault it was a blind turn so i'm really happy that i added that piece in and not only that i do want to define what victim blaming is or provide some context for the listeners because you mentioned it earlier and you're right they had gone to to some significant lengths to to imply that while this maybe wasn't your fault you could have or should have avoided it and it was very much like, well, Maureen had just as much opportunity to not have this collision happen as the driver did. And that is that was factually not the case. And so it was important for you to detail for this judge what actually happened. Absolutely. And to let them know, I didn't just blindly run into a car with taking no action is the way they were portraying it. Right. And, and I was very clear in my statement. I said, had I not reacted when I did, there's little doubt in my mind that I would have been killed that day. Yes. I'm an experienced and careful cyclist who rode 25,000 miles in the five years prior to this incident. And this was the only time I've ever crashed on the road. Even though every day on the road, I encountered day, um, careless and aggressive drivers. So it's yep. not uncommon. Yeah, um, I thought that and was I a think really important point you made. As well as your 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 point that you always make is that this is not just an accident. It was the result of careless driving. And I think it's so important that they understand, you know, the, the driver doesn't admit to not looking. Um, but I ask myself every time I think about it, was she looking at her phone? Because honestly, she had to have been looking at her phone to have missed me. It was a beautiful, clear day. There were no other vehicles, obstructions in the road. If she was looking, she would have seen me. So it was not an accident. It was avoidable. Nope. And I also resent the um, belief or misunderstanding that somehow a cyclist can stop on a dime to avoid someone else's stupidity. Like that there's mm -hmm. some miraculous physics law that no one would expect you to do if you were in your car. No one would fault you if you tagged her with your vehicle. But because you're on a bike, for some reason, you must be able to avoid every single thing within split seconds. Um, and I felt that that was also insinuated here, that you should have been able to avoid it, which is not true and not factually possible. Absolutely not. Not true. And, you know, had I had disc brakes, maybe. I mean, I was just maybe a split second from uh, missing the back of her car. But what, does everybody have to go get disc brakes now? Right, right, <laughs> right, right. Um, so the second point that I made was about the consequences. So just really the injuries that I sustained, the being wheelchair bound, the just 
I didn't even go into a lot of detail about the pain. I, I can't even tell you the pain that I had for so many months and just being completely unproductive, laying on the couch, unable to do anything but like watch binge shows on Netflix. And like, I, I couldn't even concentrate on an audiobook. It was so bad. It's a horrible existence. Yep. It is. And just, yeah. And the impact of my husband and my son, as, as you noted, you know, my son was 16 years old. So at the point that I had my accident, he actually, it was the first day of his fall break. It was parent-teacher conference day. And so when my husband came, he brought my son and my son saw me and heard me screaming in pain. And he had to, they, they took my bike, went back to the house and went to follow the ambulance. The ambulance told him they were going to, Memorial Hospital North, um, but midway they changed their mind and took me downtown to Penrose, Maine. And so my husband and son are kind of going all different ways. They took two separate cars. My son had his driver's license for uh, about a month, maybe two months at that point. And he got a flat tire on the side of I-25 and changed oh. it himself. When I heard that, being in the ER, I freaked out with thinking my son right there on the side of a busy highway. Um, but that was just the first of him having to really grow up and become responsible from a kid that could never remember to turn in his homework or wouldn't get up to go to school that had to have mom. He was, he had to get himself up. He had to feed himself. He had to get himself to and from school. He had a job at the time. He was in marching mm -hmm. band. He had to grow up overnight. That's so hard. Yeah. And at the time that I gave the uh, this the my sentencing talk. I was still in physical therapy two times a week. I graduated. Congratulations! Um, about what a week ago, two weeks Aww, ago. Maureen, that's wonderful news. <laughs> Thank you. And there is the potential that I'll need more surgery. I've lost mobility in my arm, and it's pretty. It it's quite a bit. So the surgeon wants to do another surgery, uh, but if anything were to happen to that shoulder and it were to fail, then there is no second chance, no, no repair of that. So it's a one and done. And so at my age, the longer I can delay it, the better. So I may down the road, if I opt for the surgery, gain more mobility. And it doesn't matter if there's a long delay. So, Thanks. yeah. Sorry, that's hanging over you. Oh, thank you. <sighs> and I, I really, I, when I gave my um, speech, I really wanted to use her name, so I, I wanted to let her know. You know, some things were kind of for the courts, but said, Grace Long, I want you to understand that my losses are a direct result of your inattentiveness, and I hope that you feel very fortunate for the sentence that you received today. 80 hours of community service is minuscule compared to the 850 hours that I've endured for medical care, the months where I was unable to do little besides lay on the couch, the countless hours, I mean, hours doesn't even cover it, weeks of just dealing with insurance, bills, and legal issues. And then the ongoing pain and impact in my life. I said, I hope you use your time to reflect on the legacy that you left on a stranger's life and that you choose to change your behavior and to influence others positively. Mm -hmm. And the third point I wanted to make was more for the criminal justice system, for the judge and for the district attorneys. I wanted to describe my experience as a victim. 
So let me read you the first part of it, and then mm -hmm. I'll gloss over some of the details we've already discussed. My 25-year career in the criminal justice system left me ill-prepared for my encounter with the system as a victim. I know far too many who have been seriously injured or killed while biking, and those left behind often choose not to deal with this process. I now understand why. The reality is that they don't have sufficient information about the process, they don't have the resources, and they don't have the stamina to deal with the re-victimization while they're trying to recover from their grievous losses. At that point, I detailed all the hearings that I had been to, all the challenges that I experienced trying to insert myself into this process as the victim, unwelcome, and the way that I had been lied to and ignored and blamed. I remember one statement you said, which was, you shouldn't have to hire a civil attorney to get respect or treatment in this process. That really struck me. Yes, absolutely. That was, yeah. How can the courts understand the seriousness of the crime without involving the victim? This case would have completely gone forward and been resolved without my input or involvement had I not been at every single one of those steps. And yes, why should I have to have you help me deal with their system? Um, really, I have to question what value do courts offer society if they're not seeking justice for victims? And as you said, you know, there's a lot of felonies that just don't do serious harm to people. But here you, when you have physically altered somebody forever, yep. how can you not take that seriously? It was shocking to me. And I did say, you know, driving a motor vehicle is a privilege and not a right, not a right. And the losses from these accident, accidents can be every bit as devastating as homicides or assaults. Yep. As you know, people who are killed when they're on the bike, I, I don't see much difference between that and a homicide because that person is gone forever. Mm -hmm. And as part of that experience as a victim, I wanted to talk about the civil court system. So too many times I've heard from the judicial system that equity can be achieved through the civil court system. So the DAs, the judge, everybody all along the way, oh, you'll deal with this with insurance. Don't, you know, you'll get what you're due. Mm -hmm. But nothing could be further from the truth. My body and my life are forever altered. And there is no amount of money that I would give to get those, to get that back. And I wanted to assure them that the driver's insurance and that of most drivers falls so much shorter of the actual cost that this defendant caused to me and that there'll be very little, if any, impact to her. Yep. Uh, yep, that's and, absolutely true. Yeah. So I, I really encourage cyclists and victims, even though it is so hard, I understand how hard it is, to be present, to have a voice so that we can stand stronger as a community and that people stop marginalizing cycling victims as lesser victims than those that are hit by cars. I, even as a cyclist, I, I have had to really change my thinking. And when I hear, when I in the past when I've heard that a cyclist was hit by a car and killed or seriously injured, my first thought was, what did they do wrong? in that sense of like, how can you fix it if you if you can control everything? But the reality yep. is that they 
usually are not the ones that are doing something wrong. And as a community, we need to change our mindset first, and then we need to work to change other people's mindsets. Yeah, absolutely. So you touched on a couple of things there. Are you doing okay on time, by the way? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one, you mentioned how significant it was that you rallied your Colorado Spring Cycling community and you had 75 or so folks logged in. And I think that's really important. I think the more we can do that for every one of these hearings, the better. Um, and we were a little more strategic in that with your case where we didn't try to rally the troops for every single hearing. We waited until the one that we knew really kind of mattered. Mm-hmm which ended up being the second to last one because it was the one where we were asking the judge to reject the plea. Um, and, and like victims, the cycling group does fatigue also during the process when we involve them at the beginning and we're like, oh, another hearing, another hearing, another hearing, another hearing, 12, 14, 18 months down the road. You start with 100 people logged in and by the time you finally get to the sentencing hearing where it really matters, you've got three people logging in. And so I think there is a strategy there where you you don't mention it for those first few hearings while things are getting sort of sorted out. And then as you get a sense that the case is starting to gain some traction and some important things are going to happen, it's really important to invite the cycling crowd. And so I recommend that for every cycling victim as well as whomever their advocate or attorney is to get the to get the folks involved. These are public forums. These are public courtrooms, whether you go by um, Zoom or the WebEx version for the courts, or you go in person, it's important that we show up for one another. I know it meant a lot to you that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then your point about the civil case, I think, is is so on point, too, where, yes, the criminal justice system just wants so badly, it seems, to get those case files closed, that they'll shoo you off to the civil case as though that's going to make you whole. And I don't care if it's $200,000 or a $15 million verdict, you would give every dime of that back and then some to have never been through this experience. It will never make your body right. It will never delete those memories and experiences of pain and trauma. Uh, the, the civil case is intended to monetarily compensate someone, but that is really not where the justice lies. Because as you said, the insured driver suffers not at all. Their insurance company pays the check. Maybe their premiums go a little bit, but there's zero punitive or uh, compensatory part to that other than a check being written. It's really in the criminal justice case, which is where these traffic cases fall, that we have a sense of justice, whether they are apologizing, whether they are going to jail, whether they are losing their license. It really is important. And as you said, the district attorneys and some judges, unfortunately, shoo us aside where we're not the victim of a serious crime in their interpretation. But at the same time, the civil case doesn't doesn't get us justice. And so you have to fight hard and show up the way that you did. And it's incredibly traumatic every single time you have to prepare for a court hearing. It's like ripping the scab off. Because as you said, you're focused on trying to get back on your feet. And each time a case at the court hearing comes up, it's like you get kicked in the gut all over again. It's just Mm -hmm. a yucky feeling and it hangs over you all day and it makes you feel like shit. And then you have to give a statement like you did. That's not easy. That's not easy at all. Yeah. And, and I, the amount of time that I prepared for each, I mean, all of those, yes, gut wrenching, but just giving more time than you possibly had to, to this when you need to focus on your recovery, you need to try to work a few hours, you know? Yeah. All that said, you would still encourage someone to participate. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think I could live with myself if I did not participate. That's a good, that's good input. Um, was there anything else in your sentence that um, we didn't cover that you wanted to share? No. Okay. No. 
So you have decided to get back on the bike. For many, they don't. For many, they give all their bikes away or they cut them up into pieces and we never, we never see them in the cycling community again. Um, and, but you have said, this is too much of a love in my life for me to give this up. So you're back to cycling and maybe just share some of what the bike means to you and why, and why mm -hmm. you'll always keep riding despite this having happened to you. Sure. Yes. Uh, biking is my passion. It's really was the center of my life and my health. So the way my week would go, I would spend a huge amount of time looking at the weather app and trying to figure out when I was going to ride, which days, what time of the day, and really hit the best <laughs> um, optimal riding weather. And then my life revolved around those rides. So that really was how I centered my life for five, six years. Um, and my husband even told me, so I was afraid he was going to say, you're never going to ride. You know, I, I can't bear it if you ever yeah, ride yeah. again. And one of the first things he said, I mean, before I got even through my surgeries, he's like, I, there's no way I'm going to live with you unless you're back on your bike. <laughs> so. That's the best version of Maureen, isn't it? Yep. Yep. So, and the amazing thing is that it literally is like the most healing activity that I can do for my knee. So I still struggle with standing and walking, um, or if I do hard rides where it requires a lot of power, I get a lot of swelling in my knee. So I still, I'm still dealing with that, but I get on the bike and I spin, I do some easy ride and it just spins that swelling right out. So I know that if my knee is swollen at all, that I've not been riding enough. So like, sorry, got to drop everything. This is my, my PT. I got to go do my PT. Yep. And my emotional PT as well. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Um, so I do, I do ride a little differently. It was hard just to get on the back bike because of my physical injuries. I started with the recumbent at the Y. It took me a very long time to get even on my bike on the trainer and then pretty quickly after that outdoors. So I did actually ride one of my first rides on the road was in California by myself on a busy road. <laughs> <laughs> which you must think you're just insane. No, not at all. Uh, it was California. It was spring and I wanted to ride outdoors. And I, I, I had no idea how that would be in my head. And I rode along with traffic and it was fine. It didn't freak me out at all until a car went to turn in front of me. And every time a car comes up and goes to turn in front of me or pulls up to a stop from the left or the right, um, my head just goes right back to the accident. So it it's just always there. Oh, yeah. Um, so I definitely always slow down. i always ready to brake as soon as I see a car doing that. But amazingly, the brain is just fine with, you know, traffic going the same way as me. So that kind of cracks me up a little. Um, I have made a lot of conscious decisions about changing how I ride. So I intend to sell my mountain bike. Um, maybe I'll buy another kind of lower end, but I don't think that I can handle the, I I'm willing to take the risks associated. If I injure my arm again, it would be very bad. Sure. So, and, and I'm just not that good at the mountain bike. So that, yeah, and it's causing a, a lot of pain too. It sounds like after those rides. Yeah, it's getting better though. Um, I'm doing a lot more gravel. So I just rode up Mount Hermon on Saturday, which is a local gravel ride and it's, um, 
pretty steep grade and pretty heavy duty washboards. And I went as far as we could till we hit snow and ice. Awesome. And I came down and really very little pain after. So oh, I, I'm really excited about that. So I'm trying, I'm trying to become one with the gravel and, and learn to love it more. Um, I do still ride my road bike. And when I get on it, it's just, you know, I, I'm just so happy when I'm on my road bike. But I, and I do ride alone a little and near the house, which is where I crashed. But I, I do try to limit my exposure on the road and, and not do that as much. But I've had some really great accomplishments. The, the Mount Hermon was sort of the litmus test for whether I could, um, whether I would be able to do gravel, any real gravel. And then also about two months ago, I rode my road bike up. Uh, to the top of Cottonwood Pass. So that was a little bit of a challenge for my knee, but it was, um, it felt very, very rewarding. I can see and hear you. It just says you're offline. Okay. But Sorry, it? yeah, it's, it gave a little message, but it looks oh, like I'm still here. Yeah. Okay. Well, we got to talk about the things that I really wanted to talk about with you. Is there anything that's on your mind or on your heart that you would love to share with either a driver or someone who may be going through the same experience that you went through or something that you feel like someone out there needs to hear? I think it's so important that drivers and cyclists be aware of pedestrians and cyclists on the road. And I think it's cyclists' responsibility to help educate people. I don't know how I got this when I was young, but I had a horrible fear of hitting anybody that would be walking on the road or biking and because they are so vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, you can just simply take their life away in a flash. And so I've always had that fear before I was ever cycling on the road. And I hope that people think about that all of the time and do everything they can to educate their friends and their family and just drivers at large of how important it is, how fragile life can be. And that we need to be extra careful with those people that don't have two tons of metal surrounding them. And, and not only that, I feel like there's this societal sort of vitriol towards those of us who ride bikes. Like we're in the way or we're an inconvenience. And, you know, I thought COVID was going to show us how amazing bikes were just because everyone flocked to the bike when everything else got canceled in 2020. And then, my goodness, how quickly we forgot how wonderful that was. And people became insane behind the wheel. You know, maybe as climate crisis continues to click up and up and things get real dire and you can't just go drive your car as a single passenger for short trips, um, the bike is going to become more and more of a facet of daily life. But gosh, in the meantime, it would sure be nice if people could at least say, you know what, cycling's not for me, but I don't hate you for choosing to do it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not going to hold it against you. And I've really learned to applaud e-bikes, um, yes. and I think I learned that from you, but I, the more people that are out there on bikes, whether they have a motor or not, they become more aware and sensitive, and the more, you know, every person, it's not just one person that's impacted, it's all the people in their life. Once people know that's that right. they're riding on the road, those people then are more careful around cyclists, so it really can grow exponentially. 
Yeah, the woman that does my hair, she's not a cyclist. She doesn't have any cyclists in her life or a family or anything, but she's like, I know you, and I think of you every time I see someone on a bike, and I'm always going to drive really carefully around them because I think of you. So, yeah, the more of us there are on bikes, the more people we influence and, and impact that way. Um, last thing I'll touch on is that I know you're involved in bike Colorado, or Colorado Springs Bike COS, mm -hmm. uh, which is the advocacy group for the Springs, and we have ad advocacy groups for various counties and various pockets in the Front Range in Colorado. Um, what do you wish cyclists would do when it comes to making cycling safer? Uh, if anything, you know, what's your, what's your plea? I think show up when there's meetings, show up when there's discussions about road infrastructure, you know, with all the expansion that's going on all over Colorado, cycling lanes and cycling friendly routes just need to be part of this new development and they don't happen without us showing up right it's, it's not the default to install mm -hmm. bike lanes <laughs> yeah. and so the squeaky wheel does tend to get the oil and we need as many cyclists participating as possible so um, obviously your involvement in that group is a testament uh, to um, your involvement in the issues because then they rallied around you when this happened and they showed up with significant numbers for those hearings Mm -hmm. So it goes both ways. Absolutely. And honestly, I didn't, I, I've been involved with some other bike clubs, but they reached out to me when they knew about my accident. So I've followed them and been loosely involved, but yeah, the, their support was really great. So I think to the extent that bike safety groups can help educate others, help educate cyclists when things happen, when collisions happen, that, and be there as a resource as they're going through the justice system, the recovery, I think that's an amazing thing. So I yeah, have a sure. support. Well, let's hope we can get this recording into their hands for sure and get this circulated. And um, uh, not that I would have ever wanted you to go through this experience, um, but the way that you have made your way through it is really powerful and is um, a really great example for others if they find themselves in the same situation. And, um, and I'm sorry that you had to play that, that role. I know you were just doing what you felt was right in the moment, but I really felt it was exemplary and, and um, exceptional. And so thank you for being willing to kind of rip that scab off one more time while we talk back through this thing again, this, this horrible experience. And um, I do know that you've been in your closure space since the case is resolved. And I know that that closure can be incredibly healing. And so I thank you for being willing to do this one more time. Absolutely. Anything for you, Megan. Thank oh. you for being by my side. You're so sweet. I was in the hospital and I called the insurance company to tell them about the crash. And they're like, why are you calling us? This has nothing to do with us. And I'm like, all right, my second call is to <laughs> Megan Hutman. <laughs> Well, thank you for thinking of me. It was an absolute honor to work with you. And I'm so glad that we've established a relationship outside of your case. And um, hopefully we can do a ride together sooner than later, uh, maybe in the spring when the winter is behind us. And I just look forward to all the cool things that you're going to keep doing. And I can't wait to hear about you summiting some new exceptional mountain or climb or new goal. Um, I've no doubt that you'll, you'll exceed your own expectations. That's just who you are. Well, thank you. I look forward to that.
Thank you for listening to Maximum Enthusiasm with Megan Hopman. Subscribe, check out our blog, and learn more at MaximumEnthusiasm.com.